Hello and welcome to another episode of Modern Musicology. I'm Anthony and I am joined by my good friend Alan. Alan, how are you? Great, how's it going? Going good, thank you. This episode, our other co-host Rob isn't able to be with us. So Alan and I are taking the opportunity to talk about a genre that the two of us are much more into than Rob is, and that is heavy metal. Specifically, we're celebrating major milestone anniversaries of two classic metal albums, Iron Maiden's The Number of the Beast, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary, and Wasp's The Crimson Idol, which is celebrating its 30th. We will take the two in chronological order, so we'll start with The Number of the Beast, and we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. So, Alan, I know... You've been a heavy metal fan for longer than I've even been alive. Oh, stop. <laughs> so way, way to start off that way. <laughs> well, so so where I was going with that is okay. you were around when this album actually came out. Yes, that's true. And so, it's, it's funny. It's funny, too, because since you bring that up, I was trying to remember today where my Iron Maiden love comes from. And I cannot remember. I don't know what it was like when I was first introduced to them or where I came across them. So I, I'm, I just, I'm at a loss. I have no idea. But they're there, so that's all that matters. I was going to ask you if you could remember your first experience of this album. Well, there you go. Answered before it's even asked. I, I know. You're right ahead of me. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm starting to wonder if... So, you know, um, the area that I grew up in didn't have MTV when it first launched. So, uh, I, you know, the, the sort of emerging um, music video revolution was happening. And my my outlet for that was like those, those two late night syndicated shows, Friday night videos and night flights. And I, it has to be one of those two places that I first saw Iron Maiden. That makes sense. Know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I can pretty much trace my first experience of Number of the Beast back pretty well. Yeah. So I first heard Iron Maiden when they released Brave New World in 2000 and they performed The Wicker Man on Top of the Pops in okay. the UK. And I loved it. And Brave New World, that album, was pretty much all I knew about Iron Maiden. Um, you know, I was 2000. I would have been 12. I think when that album came out, sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't want to make it I know, I know I'm, I'm, I, I kind of react funny to it, but I, it doesn't bother me at all. But about a year and a half after that, so 2001, they released their Rock in Rio live album, mm -hmm. which for me was my first exposure to a lot of older Iron Maiden songs. And on that, they played The Number of the Beast, they played Run to the Hills, and they played Hallowed Be Thy Name. And that performance of Hallowed Be Thy Name made me go, oh, shit, I've got to find the album that this is from. <laughs> and I remember it really, really well, because obviously this was uh, 2001. So everyone was still buying CDs. And I was in an exchange with a French school. So big group of us went over and stayed over in Lyon. And one day we had some time in the city center and there was a big CD store basically the French equivalent to Tower Records or, or what have you. And that's when I picked up The Number of the Beast. And okay. I spent the rest of that week in France just listening to it nonstop and going, wow, mm. this yeah. was made in the early 80s. I had no idea. Right. It doesn't sound like it. Mm -mm. 
I actually uh, got out my vinyl copy last night and gave it a listen through in anticipation of this. And nice. it sounds so fresh. It really does. It really does. Um, I'm wondering, you know, I don't remember the first time. It has to be one of the two big singles that came from that album that I heard first. And yeah. um, uh, so I don't recall when or where I first heard the album. But I mean, even listening to it now, it just it grabs you. I mean, mm -hmm. it is a solid, solid record from the moment it begins to the moment it ends. No, think, there, there's no dead weight in the middle exactly and i think about that and i look back on iron maiden's first two albums their self-titled debut and then killers and both of them were really really strong albums but there was always something missing and of course number of the beast is the debut of bruce dickinson yes who i think was the missing link it absolutely changed the whole trajectory of Iron Maiden. And, and certainly uh, not only from the sound, you know, from, you know, the delivery of the songs, but the way the songs are written, you know, mm -hmm. they write differently because, uh, and the same thing happened with Sabbath. Uh, when Ronnie James Dio came in, the, the songwriting changes because of this new voice that you have and the way that you can write to that new voice. Yeah. And what's interesting specifically about The Number of the Beast is Bruce Dickinson was technically still under contract with his prior band. Right. right. So officially, he didn't write a damn thing on that album. Yes. Unofficially, he was very heavily involved in songwriting. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is an interesting situation. You know, we've been talking a lot lately about uh, artists and ownership of music and and credits and rights and all that kind of stuff and it's and it's so interesting to go back and, and see this happening as this album was coming out in 82 and you know that it was essentially going on then too because he was anything he wrote would have gone to his former band because of the contract it's mm -hmm. fascinating incidentally his former band he was credited as bruce bruce and not bruce dickinson and oh that's right when they signed him up, Steve Harris went, he basically said, that sounds fucking stupid. No, we're not going to call you that. What's your actual name? Right. <laughs> uh, I'd forgotten about that part of the story. That's good stuff. Yeah, yeah it's very, very silly. Uh, I mean, Bruce Dickinson in general, very impressive guy. Very, yes. very talented. Writes, yes. Wrote kids books, flies planes, became a you know world-class fencer, all basically on downtime from Iron Maiden. Oh, and he found time for a solo career. Right. I mean, absolutely ridiculously talented man. Um, and yeah. he was actually here a week ago in Atlanta on his spoken word tour. Oh, that's right. I, I had a, a couple of friends who went to that. I thought about going and I'm still yeah. not comfortable uh, with a yeah. crowd that big. Yeah. So, but back on track to the number of the beast, mm -hmm. What what is it? I mean, you you already said that you think there are a huge number of fantastic tracks. It's solid from beginning to end. But what makes this album so special, do you think? I think there is, gosh, you know, that's hard to say. I think that there is sort of like a, it's almost like a rejuvenation. Not that they were at a point of being, you know, tired or 
you know, having run through any ideas that they had, you know, from the first two albums. It's just that this new element that's added in really just invigorates the whole thing. I think, I think that they were all inspired by this new presence and the, the, this new talent that's leading the band. And, and I think that's what makes the, the difference. I think that so much stuff comes out on this album that um, I, I think it's, it, it's a complete game changer for them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's really interesting that you made the parallel with Sabbath and Dio joining because mm. I look at Sabbath and I, I agree there is a rejuvenation or at least an influx of new ideas. Yeah. But I do think Sabbath were in a very different position. I mean, they were basically creatively spent. Uh, That's true. That's true. With Never Say Die. I mean, right. that album has a couple of good tracks, but. <laughs> right. And Iron Maiden certainly wasn't in that position or at that point. Yeah. Having only done two albums that were very good albums. I think it's just the, the the influx of new talent and new ideas that really just uh, makes the whole thing sail. And I think, you know, you look at where they were going with Paul Diano and he mm. would have eventually, I mean, he was doing it already, but he would have eventually really hit the self-destruct button. Yeah. I mean, you read some of the stories and you're like, wow, this guy was out of control. Mm -hmm. That's um, true. You know, I, you read some of the some of the stories are probably too wild to mention on this show, to be honest. Um, but if you ever want to to look it up, go and look what he did um, with a gun at one point. That one's an interesting story. Yeah, he. Was... I'm not going to regale it, but it's an interesting <laughs> story. I feel bad for the lady. Yeah, involved. he was an interesting cat. He was, you know, it was a weird situation, and he's been really weird since he left yeah i mean i don't mean to go too far but yeah. he's he got eventually got busted for benefits fraud <laughs> i mean he's yeah. been all over the place but <laughs> getting back to the number of the beast I, i'm very curious alan you know I, I assume this is an album that you are as familiar with as i am what are the highlights for you and why okay that's a good question um because I was listening to it again for the past couple of days, and I tried to listen to it from a completely new perspective, like going into it blind. You know, I, I, I know the album so well, but I tried to go into it with like fresh ears and to listen to it in a more critical way. And um, I know that uh, that the band felt like uh, Invaders was a weak opening track. Mm -hmm. And I sort of agree. I think there are other things on the album that uh, would have worked as an opening track, but I think it's still great. So you start off with a great track. You go into a second track, which is spectacular. And it, and it just goes literally from strength to strength. Every album is stronger than the one that came before it. The prisoner is an amazing song. Um, 22 Acacia Avenue is uh, the arrangement is uh, is more complex than the first three, but then you get into side two, and this is like a powerhouse side two, with four unstoppable classic tracks that are just like so. Number of the Beast, obviously, is you know one of the foundational songs from Iron Maiden. Run to the Hills, big hit. 
uh, sort of, you know, a gimme, but it is as good as it says. And I know there was a, a little bit of stuff about Gangland, too. Like it was um, they were debated be between that and another song to go on the album or go on the B side of a single. And they wish they had gone the other way. But I think Gangland is fantastic. You know, and then you end yeah. with Hallowed Be Thy Name, which just wraps the whole album up and brings it all together. And I mean, it starts well. Every single track increases from that point and gets better and better and better and better. Now, the 98 remastered edition had a song called Total Eclipse between Gangland yeah. and, and Hallowed Be, Be Thy Name. And yeah. that was the version of the album that I was first um, uh, mm. first. I've lost my word. Introduced to? Yes. Familiar with? <laughs> and that was the album I first experienced. There we go. There we go. Um, but I don't think it really adds anything to it. But equally, I don't think it takes away from anything. I think it's just another strong track, whether this is an eight-track album or a nine-track album. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, you know, reduce the impact of it. Mm -hmm. And... Long story short, I used to be on another music music podcast that shut down maybe two years ago. It didn't make it past the pandemic. But every time we did an album, I would always uh, make a judgment based on the first track. Is this band making a statement of intent? And I know you just said, Alan, that, that the band often debate whether Invaders was a worthy first track. I think it's a statement of intent. It, mm -hmm does everything it should it introduces bruce's voice mm -hmm. uh you know that invaders mm -hmm. which i'm probably way off key and out of tune and all that good stuff because i'm not bruce dickinson but i mean it it does what it needs to do it introduces his range it's got a good riff and then they take the tempo down with children of the damned and i mean i think each side climaxes really really well whether it's yes. 22 acacia avenue or hallowed be thy name yes there's no filler here at all none and <laughs> i feel like a shit iron maiden fan for saying this but for years i didn't appreciate the title track okay and why I, is that i couldn't i couldn't have ever told you why there was just something about it that i didn't love okay um and recently, as I've been listening to it, I've been listening more and more through the lens of a bassist. Mm. And wow, Steve Harris was just on fire through all of this. I mean, he's mm -hmm. more or less the reason I picked up a bass in the first place. But mm. for me, when I was a teenager, the bass riffs I were, was interested in were not the melodic ones. It was the pounding, you know, ones that followed the riff. But Steve Harris on this album is all over the place and that includes Invaders and notably the number of the beast the baseline on that is insane yeah it is and yeah. I think that's where I've come to really really appreciate that track that's cool so Children of the Damned I'm sure you know was uh, at least somewhat inspired by Children of the Sea the second track on Heaven and Hell I find that so fascinating. Yeah, I, I think can, so too. And and it, it it sort of like occupies the same space. 
you know, being the second track opening with that softer intro and going into that melodic thing before hitting the really heavy stuff. And, and I think it works incredibly well on this album. Well, it, it's interesting because we keep drawing parallels and, you know, we, we've already talked about the rejuvenation of the band under a new singer. And here you have a melodic second track on the first album with the new singer. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if maybe they were, maybe I'm drawing parallels where they weren't, where they're not there, but maybe in terms of actual, the, actually the track listing, they mm-hmm. did that deliberately. I wonder. I mean, I, I, I literally do wonder. And okay, so here's another parallel. Both of those albums are produced by Martin Birch. Mm-hmm. So when we when we did our last episode, uh, when we were doing our Mount Rushmore of rock, we sort of threw a sixth category in on the fly, adding a producer to our mountain range. And so as I was doing mine, the, the name Martin Birch just flashed into my head because I basically love every album that he's ever produced. Yeah. And so I just wonder if that connection comes to them from Martin Birch. I want, I'm, I'm sure they were familiar with the Black Sabbath album, but I just wonder if there was something there, you know, through Martin having had that experience with Sabbath and saying, even if they had that track in hand, him saying, you know, maybe that should go second. That should be second position, just like it was on the Heaven and Hell album. Yeah, that's entirely possible. And holy shit, Martin Birch had a ridiculous 1981. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> 81 and on, 82, both. Yeah. I, oh, everything from, I mean, his entire career is amazing, but 81, he did Killers. He did Blue Oyster Cults, Fear of an Unknown Origin. He did the Mob Rules. Yeah. I mean, wow. Uh, so I, I was planning on bringing him up anyway because, um, he is, I think that he does a thing that you hear on this album and it's that he, which is what a producer should do. He captures exactly what the band is trying to do and trying to sound like. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he gets sort of known as particularly from like the late seventies on as the, like a, one of the go-to hard rock producers. I mean, he did deep purple and rainbow mm-hmm. and white snake and, you know, cult and maiden and you know so he's got all this stuff but he goes all the way back and actually i think his deep purple work goes back to six seventy or 69 right 69 he did concerto oh that's right and then basically everything after until they split yeah yeah um so also but also in 69 he did um early fleetwood mac and mm-hmm. so it's, it's really kind of different than what you normally think of when you think of Martin Birch, when you think of Heaven and Hell and Iron Maiden. He he was also doing Fleetwood Mac, and he was basically working heavily through sort of that period after Peter Green leaves and before Lindsay and Stevie join when the band is sort of driven by, um, you know, Christine McVie is there, but you have Bob Welch and you have Danny Kerwin. And, uh, and I love that whole era and the sound that he gets from Mac is so different than what he's doing with purple and with any of the other later bands, um, you know, particularly rainbow. So I also got to say rainbow rising, one of the greatest hard rock albums ever released. And again, produced by Martin Birch. He's just, Mm -hmm. he's amazing and has that magic touch for this, these kind of bands. He has a very clean sound. 
Exactly. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of distortion on it. You can hear every instrument really, really well. Yes. It's that the mixing on a Martin Birch album is so distinctive. Yes. And, you know, you can listen to, I won't say Rainbow Rising and Heaven and Hell because they're both Dio, but you could listen to Heaven and Hell and The Number of the Beast and very easily say, yeah, this is definitely the same producer. Mm-hmm. I, mean, yeah, I agree. It's very, very clear. Yeah, I and, agree. You know, he stayed with Maiden up until 92 when Bruce. Uh, yeah, left. he was with them for a long time. Um, I would actually say he presided over Maiden's worst album, but. <laughs> but is that his fault or? No, I mean, Bruce. No. Those last two albums they did with Bruce the first time around, he was. You could hear he was kind of struggling. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that he tended to have long runs with most of the bands that he worked with. So I feel like there's something that he did when they first worked together and they just, every one of them kept him for as long as they could. Yeah. And I find that really interesting that, that sort of loyalty between from him to the band, but also from the band to him. And I think that's really cool. I mean, I think, you know, particularly in a band setting, you you listen to what went wrong with Dio era Sabbath with live evil. Mm-hmm. And you heard the stories at the time of the different camps going into the studio and secretly mixing their own part louder. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's notable that of Dio's first round in Sabbath, that was the only one that wasn't produced by Martin Birch. I think bands like him or liked him because he ensured everyone was equally heard. I agree. I agree. I feel like every player is is like well represented in the mix on every one of the albums of his that I've that I know of. Um, he d- only did two, and this is getting a little off track, but he only did two um, Blue Orsa Cold albums. They happen to be two of my absolute favorite Blue Orsa Cold albums. The yeah. sound on them is just phenomenal. That's what you get when you hire Martin Birch. There you go. So I'm curious, Alan, because I know that in the early 80s, you were going to shows. Did you see Iron Maiden around this time? No. And, you know, and that that kind of makes me wonder. I don't remember ever having the opportunity to see them around that time. So I, I, I'm sure they had to have come to Central Florida at some point. But I just can't remember ever even being aware of them having come. Cause you know, around that time I was seeing uh black Sabbath and I saw rainbow and I saw ACDC. So this is exactly where my head was at at that time. So yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe they weren't quite on my radar yet. And that came a little bit later. I don't remember, but I mean, I, I'm sure I, if they had been there, I would have, I would have tried to see them. I would imagine that they probably didn't come through until maybe the world slavery tour. Okay. On Power Slave. Mm-hmm. I think they played Jacksonville then. Mm-hmm. But that was just an insane, insane tour because they did, you know, a hundred and something yeah. ridiculous day. It was nearly 200 dates. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the most ambitious tours of all time, but that's another topic for another time. But yeah, I mean, obviously, I didn't see them on the Number of the Beast tour, but I have seen them in modern times and heard them play some of these songs live. And I think they pack, they pack every bit as much of a punch live as they do on the studio mm-hmm. version. I mean, it's a hundred percent an absolute masterpiece. 
Mm -hmm. Did you see, um, I'm sure you have, the documentary Flight 666? Actually, I haven't. You must go watch it. It is phenomenal. It is so good. One of my favorite rock documentaries. Okay. Yeah, I've started... For a long time, I wasn't that interested in music documentaries, but lately I've been getting really into them again. Um, I've seen a couple of Maiden documentaries. The one they did on the early years is really, really good. That takes mm -hmm. you from, I want to say, the their first album through, I think it's Peace of Mind. So there's mm -hmm. a bit on the number of the beast on that, but I'll check out Flight 666. Yeah. It's basically a tour documentary, but it's, you know a different song in a different city and all yeah. the interstitial stuff of them actually traveling. And it's so good. I've heard the, I've heard the album that goes with it. I just yeah. haven't checked out the actual documentary. So right. I will They're add just, that for background sorry. watching this week while I'm working. Mm -hmm. They are such good performers. They absolutely own that stage and bring their music to life. And they never, like, I don't think I've ever seen them, you know, either in person or on film or whatever, but that they're, that they're not performing at top level. They, yeah. especially Bruce is just amazing. The only time I haven't was they did a, they filmed their last concert with Bruce. Uh, the first, when he left. Mm-hmm. Um, and put it out under the name of Raising Hell. And they had a magician come in and do magic acts and all this kind of shit with it. And Bruce <laughs> Bruce looked like he hated every moment of that show. Yeah. Uh, but again, this was at the time when he was really struggling and just didn't want to be there anymore. That's true. And the band were pissed off at him because he had announced that he was going to leave before the tour was up and there was just a lot of bad energy with the band at that time. Right. But since he's back agreed. And then really up until that final tour for fear of the dark, he was, you know, as you said, never a bad show. Yeah. He's, he's incredible. They all are. I, a lot of maiden purists, um, talk smack about Yannick Gers and his, theatrics on stage you know he kind of prances around and throws his guitar and all this kind right. of stuff he I, I love watching him he's right. so entertaining absolutely um, and particularly when you they're playing these big stadiums and arenas and you've got a massive stage yes. you know it's right. it's fun to have that taken up by you know you've got steve harris who's doing like his machine gun style exactly. bass playing <laughs> you got bruce running around the whole place and you know you've got yannick doing his weird stuff in the corner i mean why not right um before we move off of this topic uh i do want to talk about some of the stuff that was going on around the time of the release of this album and that was all of the controversy that came particularly in america particularly from conservative church-going folk who saw this as a literal invasion of evil. Like, and I'm starting to wonder if that's not how I started to actually become aware of Iron Maiden. Were you so, dabbling in the dark arts? <laughs> no, <laughs> but just hearing all this fuss about it, you know, may have been the thing that brought it to my attention. I really can't remember. But um, you know, I think it's interesting that going back to the 70s, this is what KISS kind of went through on a much different level 
and for far less reason, you know, it was just silliness with Kiss. But Iron Maiden comes along and they have a song called The Number of the Beast. And they yeah. sing lines from, you know, Revelation and all this kind of stuff. And it really ruffled the feathers of, you know, the heartland of America. And I mean, I remember so clearly the, the you know, bonfires where people were throwing albums into the fire and all this kind of stuff, which of course meant that they had to have gone and bought copies of the album to throw them <laughs> into the fire. So, you know, everybody wins. <laughs> Iron Maiden you, sells a bunch of copies and the Christians have, you know, records to throw into a bonfire. You can always count on those types of people to protest in a way that still profits the band that they're protesting on. <laughs> it's idiotic. <laughs> but also, if if that's where I got my first exposure to Iron Maiden, you know, then... An, another another way of backfiring your the, the thing you're trying to accomplish oh 100 you know? percent. i mean i mean it's just like it's just like with doctor who everything comes back to doctor who for us you know every time um there was controversy about something you know negative in the show more people watched it the following week to find out what was going on that you know so you know the worst thing you can do is draw attention to the thing you're trying to protest it's that old adage of no publicity is bad publicity right <laughs> exactly <laughs> and that's definitely the case with this album right and i think that really helped put iron maiden on the map in america i don't think that their profile would have been raised as highly as it did as quickly as it did here had it not been for that yeah i would agree i don't think so, it raised the same kind of levels of uh disgust in the uk but equally, they were already doing the right stuff in doing, you know, supporting Judas Priest on tour and, um, you know, putting yeah. out high quality metal albums when that whole new wave of British heavy metal was going on. Right. They just proved themselves to be one of the best bands in it. I mean, oh, yeah. Candidly, who the fuck listens to Saxon these days? Well, you got a point there. But, <laughs> you know, also Saxon, I, don't, I just, you know, Saxon was a good band. I just don't think I like ever... Saxon. <laughs> I don't think they ever really had the the level of songwriting or the musical proficiency that Iron Maiden has. Yeah. I think that Iron Maiden is just one of the most solid bands of any genre of music that you can find. We you look at the bands that are considered part of that new wave of British heavy metal scene. Yeah. And you know, the cream rises to the top. And in this instance it's Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. They're yes. the ones that are still going. They're the ones that are still touring. They're the yes. ones that still sell out arenas. You know, Saxon right. still tour, but they play clubs. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And the other thing that I, that I love so much about Maiden is that their songs are very literate. So mm -hmm. many, and not in, even in the sense of how they're written, but most of them, well, a lot of them are inspired by actual literature. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, and I think that the quality of their music is so high that just there just aren't many bands that can touch them. Right. I would agree with that. I would agree. And I mean, I think that uh, part of me wants to put that on Bruce because he's got a history degree. He's a smart guy. But it's exactly. not just him. They no. wrote things like Phantom of the Opera before Bruce was in the band. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Speaking of smart guys, should we move on to our next album? <laughs> well, that's an interesting segue. 
But yes, go right ahead. All right. So The Crimson Idol by Wasp. Since this is a concept album, I do want to talk a little bit about the story of yeah. the album itself, particularly as it's nowhere near as well known as The Number of the Beast. The, the album itself, though, was originally meant to be a solo album by Blackie Lawless, who's Wasp's frontman, as the band had actually disbanded a couple of years earlier. The label, though, being the record label, put pressure to release it as a Wasp album. The fans put pressure to release it as a Wasp album. And by God, it was released as a Wasp album. <laughs> but Wasp, Wasp had become famous with a lot of kind of shock rock stuff. They played a lot of, in their first kind of few albums, there were a lot of al uh, lot of tracks about sex and drugs. They were kind of not notable for songs like Animal, Fuck Like a Beast, Love Machine, Wild Child. But on their last album before they broke up, uh, The Headless Children, they started getting a bit more serious. Blackie had kind of said, okay, I've used this shock rock wave to get myself famous. Now I can do what I actually want to do. And this album was really his baby from start to finish. It's semi-autobiographical. It reflects his disillusionment with the music business itself. And the premise is there's this central character, Jonathan, who grew up in a household where basically his family didn't love him. He was the younger of two brothers. His older brother, Michael, was very, very much the favorite. And when Michael dies after being hit by a drunk driver, the parental abuse of Jonathan basically gets pretty bad and he runs away. Out on the streets, he becomes an alcoholic and one night sees a red guitar or a crimson guitar in the window of a music shop and he uses a liquor bottle to smash the window and steals the guitar. He teaches himself how to play and meets a record label magnate Chainsaw Charlie who hooks him up with a manager, Alex Rodman, and gives him a record deal. Jonathan really throws himself into the lifestyle of the debauched rock star, drinking heavily, doing enormous amounts of drugs, and hanging out with all of the wrong people. Eventually, Alex loses patience with his partying ways, chews him out, and tell, tells him to clean up and lose his hangers-on. When the party's over, he has a moment of self-reflection, realizes that he's this big rock star now and calls his parents in the hope that he'll finally get his get their approval. And the phone call lasts no more than 50 words. The parents do not give their approval and end the call with the words, we have no son. Despondent that he will never have their approval and seeing the futility of the lifestyle he's been swallowed up by, he plays one last concert and at the culmination of the show, hangs himself with his own guitar strings. So obviously a very lighthearted and jovial album. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, it's it's heavy. Um, so I've loved this album for a while. I, I'm very curious though, Alan, was this your first time hearing this? It absolutely was. And I got to say, um, as much as I love Maiden and Priest and all those other things going on around that time, Wasp was just not on my radar. Like I knew of them. I, I, you know, I knew a song or two, you know, it, it just never really, I, I, I kind of think that their, their shock rock thing was comical. So I just never took them seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like it was, you know, like the, 
the cartoon villain. <laughs> well, and, uh, they were ridiculous. Uh, their yes. early album, their, not their early albums, their early concerts, they threw raw meat into the audience. They right. had, you know, they would tie semi-naked women to various contraptions on stage and hang them upside down. And right. this is why I said Blackie Lawless is a very smart guy. He did all of this stuff basically to get the band attention and get them on the radar and get people talking about them. Yeah. But as soon as he had enough of a following, he pivoted yeah. to a lot more serious subject matters. Right. So I feel like maybe I, you know, missed the train a little bit, you know, by not paying attention to them when they were trying to get my attention. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I was, I remember seeing them on whatever video channel I was watching at the time. And, you know, I just felt like, Oh, look at them. They're just trying so hard to be what kiss used to be and blah, blah, blah. But then I said that about Motley Crue too. Motley Crue certainly turned out to be, you know, <laughs> a rise to the top kind of band. Um, and they all came out of the same scene. I mean, they all played yeah. on that sunset sunset strip in LA in the early eighties between yeah. wasp Motley Crue, uh, Skid Row, you know, mm. all those bands at the time. And I think one of their earlier songs, Wild Child, Blackie mm -hmm. actually offered that to Motley Crue. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. Interesting. Which is a shame because it's a killer song. <laughs> um, so what, what are your general thoughts on the album? I'm curious. Well, I'll tell you, I had a hard time getting into it. <sighs> You know, I, I listened to it, a, I don't know, four or five times this week. And I kind of found myself uh, at the beginning of the album. I thought, OK, well, this is this is actually pretty good. I'm enjoying this. But that would sort of, you know, fade away by the midpoint. I mean, I just kind of found myself drifting off into doing other things midpoint. Like, I don't know. Tell me why you love it so much. I'm I'm very interested to know. So... I think part of it is I hear a lot of a lot of Maiden in the guitar work. That's a big okay. part of it. You listen to the yeah. harmonies on something like Chainsaw Charlie. Yeah. Very, very Maiden-esque. That's a good point. One thing that really, really draws me in with this album, though, is there's this kind of recurring motif. You get a lot of recurring riffs, recurring uh, lines, the I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a Crimson Idol. Right you know, that keeps the theme going throughout and just mm -hmm. weaves the story. And every time you hear the lyrics, there's a slight twist on it as right. Jonathan gets to a different point of his story. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I got into this album because I, I was compiling a playlist, uh, actually a companion playlist to go with Fear of the Dark, strangely enough. Interesting. <laughs> and I was pulling together a playlist of other big metal tracks that came out in 1992. Mm -hmm. And Chainsaw Charlie Murders in the New Morgue made it onto that playlist. Okay. And, you know, I just kind of put it on there. I, I'd listened to it maybe once and thought, yeah, this is pretty good. And as I put the playlist on shuffle, it came up again, and as I gave it a proper listen, I just thought, shit, <laughs> this is phenomenal. <laughs> um, 
you know, it it starts off basically with a spoken word piece, and Blackie has a phenomenal speaking voice. He's very engaging in the way he speaks, mm-hmm. and then it comes in with with a really chugging riff. But by the time you get to the chorus, it has guitar harmonies that yeah. flow off of, of after the lines, and then there's a time signature change. Mm-hmm. And it goes in a different direction. And then it right. brings you back towards the end of the song. And you know how at the end of the year, Spotify gives you the end of year wrap up. In yeah. 2020, I listened to Chainsaw Charlie Murders in the New Morgue over 150 times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and of course, you know, part of that was I listened to the rest of the album and right this is, this is the least metal thing possible i listened to it repeatedly while doing yard work and pulling weeds out of the border around my house metal is a state of mind metal is. is everywhere even in the weeds in your yard <laughs> but um as i was doing that it just resonated with me and mm-hmm. the whole album you know it it has its peaks and its lows i think one the mistake one of the mistakes they made was taking chainsaw charlie which i think is one of the high points of the album mm-hmm. and putting it in there as track four okay i think after that it it kind of lulls a bit before yeah. finally getting to that final track the great misconceptions of me right which is absurd as a track i mean I, i'm sure as a drummer you kind of appreciate the sheer energy that frankie banali was putting in to these tracks because they seem pretty high tempo yes and that's actually something that i was going to say is that um from a drumming perspective uh this album is intense to the point where it's almost too much mm. you know it's like it's like every song is overplayed in a way. And, and, and I hate to, I hate to, you know, throw any negativity on it because partly because, you know, people like Blackie, you know, this is like their artistic statement, you know, this is something that they've created that they really care about. And I hate shitting on other people's artistic accomplishments and artistic drive so it is a very good album it really is and the musicianship is very high i I gotta say i was really surprised having never having only listened to you know stuff like fuck like a beast you know i was really (laughs) i was and it's funny that our conversation goes from number of the beast to fuck like a beast (laughs) outstanding but but i was really i was impressed by uh blackie's uh, voice by his range of uh, delivery and particularly um, listening to the uh, one of the tracks that was sort of tacked on later is that spoken word bit, the 16 minute thing, the story uh, of Jonathan, which is yep. basically him in character, just, you know, almost in monotone because this is a person who has just been beaten down emotionally and and just sort of like telling his own story and it's and it's really really interesting and i honestly found i mean that's the thing that sort of helped me connect to the album listening to the story of jonathan 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was really surprised because before that it was it was a collection of songs. I knew the theme of the of the album. I knew the story it was telling. And I was listening at because I read up on it before I started listening to it. And then I was hearing the way that the lyrics are telling the story. And I don't know, I, I didn't connect with it as much as I did until I listened to that 16 minute recitation. And I, I think that helped to really uh, sort of tie it all together for me. Well, you've uh, enjoyed it more than Martin Popoff, who described it as an unenjoyable, even hurtful failure in the concept album department. So there's that. But yeah, I I think that spoken word piece really does help. Um, That wasn't on the original album. That was on the 98 remastered version. Right. And I mean, to your point, I think it really helps tell the story in a way that isn't quite there on the album. And you listen to interviews with Blackie, um, more recently, and he talks about how effectively, huh, who'd have guessed, there was record label pressure, mm. and he ended up putting out something that he wasn't entirely happy with. There were songs mm. that should have been on it that weren't. Okay, I mean, it came in at ten tracks, and yes. a few years ago, they he basically re-recorded the whole thing and put it out as re-idolized, mm-hmm. and that's a sixteen-track album, right? And I and I know that there was a couple of tracks that were I, I think were recorded that didn't make it to the album because that was part of the wasn't that part of the in the 15 year anniversary that was when they did the first remaster of it weren't there a yeah. couple of other tracks too or was it just the addition of that story the 98 remastered version had some live tracks right okay and okay. a couple of covers and a couple of tracks that weren't really part of the story okay um they included a cover of like when the levy breaks and that kind of stuff right i saw that listed um, on like track listings i didn't listen to that to the extended stuff um yeah because i i didn't i only had this past week and i wanted to focus on the original album itself so on the original album um since we talked about the drumming we got to talk about the guitar work too because bob I was, kulik i was gonna say there's oh, a whoa. there's a kiss uh connection here yeah, but Bob Kulik has been all over the place, though. He's, oh, yeah. He's played with Diana ever... Ross and... I, I know, you would never Meatloaf guess. And right. Michael Bolton. So, and... <laughs> yeah, he's he, been he and his brother Bruce are both just phenomenal players. So I really think that um, the guitar work is the thing that is, is the strongest element of this album. Um, I kind of slightly agree with Martin Popoff. I, I don't think that as a... <laughs> As a concept album, I don't know that this is the strongest concept to carry an entire album. You know, I, I was going to ask um, how it stacked up against other heavy metal concept albums like Operation Mindcrime or Seventh right. Sun. Right. See, I think those things. I think this is a good album. I'm going to state mm-hmm. that once again. Um, but I don't think that this has the imagination. And I know that it, you're, you, I know you said it's, it's partly, you know, semi autobiographical, which I understand. And I, and I get he's trying to tell a particular story. But, you know, I mean, the whole thing of a rock star doing a, you know, concept album about a guy wanting to be a rock star. I mean, at least when Bowie did it, it was an alien who was coming to Earth to save it from destruction five years in its future, you know? So there was at least a different level of, of, you know, creativity well, to it. 
but I, I'm not sure it's necessarily about a rock star wanting to, or a kid wanting to be a rock star. It's a lot more cynical than that. It's a look at the industry and basically saying mm -hmm. this is how shitty it is and how it uses people and yeah. chews them out. And when they are gone, it will continue to profit off of them. Mm -hmm. And he even sings that in Chainsaw Charlie, you know, and tomorrow when uh, yeah. when I'm gone, you know, basically, will they still sell me on? Yeah. And of course, at the end, he kills himself and the industry is still going to profit off of his death. It's, oh, of course. it's so very, very cynical. Yes, I, I agree with that. But it's funny that you mentioned Operation Mindcrime, because that's the thing that I kept thinking about while I was listening to this album. And I was not uh, trying not to compare the two. Because uh, I think Mindcrime is just fantastic. I think that's the gold standard of heavy metal concept albums. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, Dream Theater has done a couple that um, have been to varying degrees of success in in my book. Musically, I've enjoyed them. Storyline, I don't know that I've enjoyed them as much. You know. So, as a metalhead and as a prog fan, I I really struggle with Dream Theater, and I'm a little <laughs> embarrassed to say that. I think I've mentioned it before. At times, I feel like they're showing off for the sake of showing off. Right, right. And it stops being actually good. I mean, they're just showing off their technical prowess without mm -hmm. any concern for a melody or, you know, something that actually makes sense from anything other than a technical perspective. Right, right. Um, but that's going off topic. <laughs> but yeah, I, you mentioned the guitar work. And for me, that's absolutely one of the highlights of this album. Yeah. I mean, I honestly don't know which pieces of that were Bob and which were Blackie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know Bob is credited for lead guitar. So all of those mm -hmm. guitar harmonies and solos that I love on tracks like Chainsaw Charlie mm -hmm. are probably Bob. Um, probably you know, sometimes sometimes there are credits given and, and credits not given for some things so mm -hmm. That's uh, very true. I, I know on stage blackie doesn't play those those lead parts he le leaves it to someone else but um, yes yeah so okay uh other than chainsaw charlie tell me what you what your highlights are from this album I, I like the higher paced ones. So Chainsaw yeah. Charlie I already mentioned Dr. Roxa, I think is really, really fun. Mm -hmm. Um and really makes me very vividly picture this manic rock star life of, of just trying to get the next fix. Mm-hmm. And the great misconceptions of me. I, I've already mentioned that, but that is yeah. so intense. Yeah, it uh, really is. <sighs> And it does a really wonderful job of bringing the themes presented earlier in the album and tying them all into one piece. I, I think it's yeah. very, very good. It's very clever. I yeah. mean, uh, yes, this album is a little overplayed, particularly in the drumming department. Although I can't, I can't talk much about that because I listen to a lot of extreme metal where the drummers just. <laughs> pounding at the double bass drum and it's going <laughs> right so this is you know not overplayed in comparison to that but i see your point yeah i i think you know the great misconceptions of me to me is where they pull together all of those recurring elements and motifs mm -hmm. and put it into this big cathartic track yeah and you hear you know blackie sounds so desperate in that track yeah and it's just, to me, it's so 
it's that culmination that gives that catharsis at the end of the record and just leaves you thinking. Yes. And it, it does exactly what a finale is supposed to do. It does mm-hmm. exactly. It takes all those things that you have been presented with over the past hour or whatever it is. And it puts it to you in a new way. It, it ties all the themes together. So I think the album is structured very well, you know, in a very sort of like traditional kind of way with a, with an overture, um, a character piece, um, it, the, the, the song, the songs that tell the, the story as it goes, the reflection on from the character, like sort of internal monologue, and then a big finale that tells you exactly. I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's a very successful album. If, if, see, I can't even I can't even sum it up properly because I think it's really well done. <laughs> I think it's well recorded. I think it's well played, well produced. Um, it Something just, just doesn't click. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. but that happens sometimes. And it may be that the more I listen to it, the more it will click. I don't know. So. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it probably took me about three listens to get into it. Oh, the one track I forgot. I really enjoy The Invisible Boy. The second track on the album, yes, um, yeah, you know, that's too. very high tempo as well, yes, and that sets the story quite well as well, particularly in the terms of Jonathan and something about uh, Blackie's delivery of certain lines. I feel is absolutely hilarious, <laughs> uh, <laughs> unintentionally so, but the way I he agree. he sings, yeah, I'm the new whipping boy. I'm just like, yes. every time I just want to <laughs> laugh. And yeah. I know it's not meant to be, but no, exactly. It's it's, it's funny, <laughs> right? You no, know, and he's I, talking about being beaten with a strap by his father, and yeah, right, right. And so, you know, when I was talking about, you know, the, the first half of the album, I, I was enjoying, and then the second half it tapers off. And I, I think that the the first couple of tracks there are, are the things that really uh, sort of anchored the whole thing for me. And I know that the first couple of times, I, the first at least one time that I listened to it, I don't think I even made it to the end. So I don't think I even heard great misconceptions until the, maybe the second or third time that I listened to it. I think there's one one track on the entire album that I think was a colossal mistake. Okay. And that's Hold On To My Heart. Interesting. Interesting. Because I can't decide if I like that one or not. I think that one was put there because the label wanted a, a ballad to use as a single. It's very possible. But I think I think narratively it fills the it fills the exact right spot in the story before you go into the big finale. I think and that it musically it does the job that you want it to do. And it's a little bit of a, ch- a change of pace. I mean yeah. the album is pretty relentless up until that point. Exactly. But did it have to be that track? I, I just, <laughs> I just don't think musically it fits in any way, shape, or form. They could have done a down tempo ballad. Yeah, I just think that particular version of a down tempo ballad mm-hmm. was a colossal failure. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I mean, can kind of understand your point there. I, I don't think it necessarily fits on the with the tone of the album. And I'm going to draw a parallel from another album two years earlier that I think did do that kind of thing properly. Mm. And it's an album that similarly was more or less a nonstop assault until it gets to the one down tempo track. 
and that's Judas Priest with Painkiller. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, you yeah. go through all of those intense metal assaults. Right. And then you get to A Touch of Evil, which comes right. in just before the, the two tracks that finish up that album. Right. And that is pitched perfectly mm -hmm. in terms of tone with the rest of the album. And that's Agreed. what Hold On My Heart does not do. I agree with you I, on, on both counts, both on the, the Priest and the Wasp count. But I, I still think that essentially it works because mm -hmm. if I'm thinking of it more like if. OK, so like um, Green Day turned American Idiot into a Broadway musical. Had this gotten <laughs> that kind of presentation, had this uh, not that I would ever want it to be Broadway, but had this ever been done in a theatrical setting, I think that song would work. Yeah, you know? I would so agree I with that. Right. If you're not thinking of it necessarily as a metal album, but you're thinking of it as a theatrical piece, you know, as a whole thing, I, I think it I think it works. Yeah, I don't think that it's as sense. good as the priest. I mean, you know, oh, uh, nothing's as painkiller is is oh, one no. of the gold standards of heavy right. metal. I mean, right. <laughs> You know, I already mentioned Operation Mindcrime as being the gold standard of concept yeah. albums in heavy metal. I think right. Painkiller is, I mean, for me, it's one of my top five albums or top five metal albums of all time. It's hard to yeah, think of anything else. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so how do you think this album stacks up to other Wasp albums? Either before or since, if you have listened to them after this. This is the only Wasp album I really like all the way through. Okay. I think Blackie has done some albums that are a great collection of songs, but they're far less consistent than this. Mm -hmm. And I, I've delved pretty deep into his career, including some of the stuff he did before Wasp. Yeah. Uh, he was in the New York Dolls for about five seconds. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean, he played literally about two shows with them before they split up. Nothing to do with mm -hmm. him. They were splitting up and he was yeah. brought in to honor their contractual commitments on two shows in Florida. <laughs> but he then formed a band. Well, he then went off with Arthur Kane from New York Dolls and formed Killer Kane. Right. And had a song with them called Mr. Cool, which became later became a Wasp song called Cries in the Night. That's a great song. Uh, he mm -hmm. then formed a band called Circus Circus, which was basically Wasp without being called Wasp. Those early albums I struggle with because there are some great tracks in there. I really like Wild Child. I really like I Want to Be Somebody. I really like, um, yeah, I even like Cries in the Night, which, as I said, was originally Mr. Cool. <sighs> but those albums just don't quite do it for me. Yeah. And you hear him a lot of the time reusing ideas from earlier in his career. Uh, as I mentioned, Mr. Cool became Cries in the Night. He demoed a couple of these tracks with Circus Circus mm -hmm. in the early 80s before Wasp became a big thing. Mm -hmm. You know, these tracks had been gestating for around 10, 12 years before yeah. it was actually laid down as an album. And I think that's what drives the consistency here is... He's been thinking on these. He's been refining them. And this was meant to be the album that launched Blackie Lawless, the solo career. Right, right. And, you know, it's almost like he'd been saving this. And then after this, the, the next album, Still Not Black Enough, was actually really good and really prescient. There's a song on there called Goodbye America, 
Mm. And he, you know, this was 1995, and he talks a lot about racial inequalities and the hypocrisy of the right and all this stuff that has really become a big part of the national dialogue in the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, it was really eerie listening to that track in the aftermath of George Floyd, for example. Mm. Yeah. Um, that album's great. And then he went in a different direction after that, did an album called, I think, Kill, Fuck, Die or something ridiculous like that. I saw that, yes. The, I was looking through the discography. <laughs> and and that album, he tried to do the whole industrial metal thing that Marilyn Manson was doing at the time. Oh, and, yeah. You know, I, I just feel like after these two albums, Crimson Idol and Still Not Black Enough, he's never quite, never quite reached the same heights. Yeah. And what's really interesting is if you go on setlist.fm and look mm -hmm. at concert set lists, yeah. so much of it is from the first six albums from their self-titled debut through to oh, yeah. Still Not Black Enough. Oh, yeah. And because... everything else, you might get a track or two, but not much. Right, right. No, I know. That's how it is for all these legacy bands, you know? Except Iron Maiden. Well, that's true. That's a very good point. And they will do one tour where it's all like, you know, they're big hits. And then they'll do another one where it's just not. You're, there's just certain things you're not going to hear on, on certain tours. And I think that's fantastic. And that said, I, I went and saw Priest. I, I've seen Priest a number of times. But most recently, I saw them at the Fox on the Firepower tour. And I think about 25% of that set list was from Firepower. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah. you know, is surprising for, as you call them, legacy bands. Right. Dude. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many bands that uh, Sticks has done this a few times too. They they haven't put out that many albums in the last, you know, 15 years, but the last two that they did, I am surprised at how much of the new material they continue to play. And um on their current tour, uh where the focus is their newest album, they are still playing a track or two from the album that came out in 2016. So you know, like a third of the show is stuff that was not played on the radio in the 70s and the 80s, which is what the majority of their audience is. So well, I'm always surprised by that. It's like, you know, I'm a big Marillion fan. Who? You? I've never heard that yeah, before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, of the 10 shows I've been to, I've seen them play Kaylee twice. Right. And Kaylee was their biggest hit. The first time was on one of the three nights I saw them at their fan convention back in 09. Right. And then the other time was the last time they came to the US and they were deliberately coming places they hadn't been in a very long time and mm -hmm. took the attitude of, we'll play some of our newer stuff, but we'll put in some of our bigger hits so that these audience can actually hear them for the first time in forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love that. I, as a fan of a band, I want to go and hear the deep cuts. Absolutely. You know, most bands have like 17 live albums. I can go hear the big hits on one of those. Right. And Kiss just pisses me off because they refuse to ever play deep tracks. They play the same shit every tour and it just irritates us not out of me. And I just stopped going to see them because I'm like, you're just going to play the same 15 songs that I heard you do last time. And I, I just don't need to hear it again. Yeah, but... <sighs> I know you're a big Kiss fan, but uh, from the outside, they seem to be, be these days more of a money-making exercise than anything else. No. <laughs> They're the Gene Simmons retirement fund. Basically. Well, yes. 
but you know, on the other side of that, I I, I kind of think that Marillion knows that they aren't that their audience isn't dependent upon the people who like wrote them for the hits. You know, that's true. So if they don't play Kaylee, their their audience is not going to care. Yeah, you know, and I think I think that yes needs to get in that mindset and you know stop feeling like they have to play roundabout every tour. You know, just give that's that slot to something else. They have been doing some. Sorry, and I realize they we're have. going off. We're going well, in a different direction, but they've started playing some stuff from drama recently. I know, I know. Well, getting well, I was going to say John getting Anderson rid of, was. Yeah, John Anderson would not do it. He was a now the new guy bitch over it. Yeah, <laughs> the new guy who's basically a hired gun. Well, he's not because now he's like kind of driving the ship and you know writing all the new albums and all that kind of stuff. But anyway. Uh, they told they told him, "Hey, we're going to do drama." And he's like, "Okay." But anyway, so I mean, I'm sure a big part of that was getting Jeff Downs back in the band. Correct. So, all right. Anyway, we're going way off topic. Yeah. So, okay. overall, you appreciate the Crimson Idol, but it didn't quite click for you. Is that a fair summary? That's a very fair summary. Okay. Yep. I understand, and I am not offended. I appreciate though, it very much for what it is and what Blackie attempted and for the, I think the, the, the guts to, to make that kind of statement. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's what he does these days. If you ever listen to an interview with him, he gets very serious and talks about serious topics because he's a yeah. serious guy with serious opinions. <laughs> But no, I mean, seriously, though, I, I, I'm making fun of him a little, but he does come across as very intelligent, very eloquent. Yeah. And you can tell everything he did in his early career was entirely a calculated move to get somewhere. He's, right. he's fascinating to listen to. Mm, yeah. I will often just track down interviews with him on YouTube because I enjoy listening to him. I enjoy yeah. hearing him speak about things. But I think that just about wraps us up on this topic. So, Alan, what are we talking about next time around? Our next show is going to be a topic that I'm so excited to talk about because it's something that's really in the news right now and something that I'm fascinated by. So our, our next show is going to be the big sellout artists and their catalogs. Ooh, now I yes. know we've touched on that before, but it'll be good to do a deep dive on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very cool. Yep. So we'll be back next time around for that. Uh, Rob will be joining us, we hope. Much as I'm sure everyone loves the sound of mine and Alan's voices, Rob does add another dimension to the, the crew. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope that you'll join us again next time. Alan, what can we find you working on? Uh, let's see. I have another podcast, which is all about Star Trek. It's called Earth Station Trek, and you can find it on Podbean and Spotify and all those other related places. And I have a little publishing company called CosmicPress.com. Awesome. And if you want to hear my English tones elsewhere, you can find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast, where we are watching through... Uh, all of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We have, as of today, which is the end of January 2022, just released our episode on the mutants. So we are about halfway through John Pertwee's run. So please do check us out. Find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, yada, yada, yada. 
Thank you so much for listening to Modern Musicology. We will be back next time round for another episode of Musical Discussion. But in the meantime, have a good one.